And we have been looking at the life change that Jesus causes in people as we've been looking at that through the lens of the book of Acts. And we've been seeing that as people come to Jesus, it causes them to look at God differently and to look at other people differently. And that idea is certainly present in Acts 10 and Acts 11. And as we about are about to move into this text that uh, Frank is just reading for us here in, in Acts 10, I want us just to take a moment and, and ask ourselves kind of an, this internal question. How do you look at other people? How do you look at strangers? How do you look at people you don't know? And how do you look at people that don't think like you? And they don't act like you, and maybe they don't even look like you, and they don't care about God. How do you think about those kinds of people? I think about when the kind of world and culture we're in right now that makes it easy for us to have a negative perspective upon people we don't know. Just kind of have this immediate negative they're out to get me, watch out kind of mentality toward others. And, and I suppose that's uh, not completely unwarranted. I, I was thinking about you know, when I was a kid, a long time ago, my parents had no idea where I was. And I'd get on a bike and I'd just go ride my bike and I'd go way up the street and out into these hills over there. And I, mean, I could have broken my leg and nobody know the, know the better and ride a bike to a convenience store and get baseball cards and stuff like that way out there. And now you're at a time where you can't even let them go out of your sight, out of the driveway. And so it's not unwarranted about this negative perception that we sometimes have in people. But I want us to consider how these things can stain the way we approach others and the way we think about them and the way we talk to them and the way we act around them. And I think a, a useful image comes out of that in Acts 10, where what you have God doing is ultimately having to break through a lot of paradigms that exist. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, you are introduced to a person who is called Cornelius. He is in Caesarea. He is a commander of the Roman army in Caesarea. An important outpost is placed there uh, by the Romans. And so he is in charge of a, a number of men, probably around a, a hundred men or so of this Italian Regiment, but we are told something really unusual about this man Cornelius is that though he's a Gentile, though he's a Roman citizen, and though he is a, a, a Roman commander over an army, verse 2 tells us he is a devout person who fears God and he does charitable deeds for the Jewish people and he prays to God. Not what you would expect out of a Roman commander in charge of a Roman army. And yet in that, about that time as Cornelius is praying, God is intervening. 
and gives Cornelius a vision of an angel who says, you need to send some messengers to go get this man named Peter to come up to you. That's about the essence of what it is all about. And so when the angel is gone in verse 7, we're told he does exactly what the angel says for him to do. He sends some messengers who are going to go and get Peter. At the end of verse 8, then the, the scene changes and shifts. And we're seeing now about Peter. And, and Peter, at the same time, he is over in Joppa. He goes up on a roof to pray. And while he's on the roof, he becomes hungry and God comes to him in a vision. And in that vision, you see something very strange where we have this large sheep, a sheet with all kinds of animals. And it says birds and reptiles. It just kind of sounds like everything you could throw into the sheet is in this sheet. And the sheet comes down. And we're told that a voice in verse 13 tells Peter to get up and kill and eat these animals. And Peter's response is immediately in verse 14, no, for I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then it happens a second time. She comes down, eat the animals. Peter goes, no, I'm not going to eat the animals. And it happens a third time. Eat the animals. And Peter goes, no, I'm not going to eat the animals. Now, it's important why, to know why Peter is saying, I'm not going to eat the animals. He's not saying that because he has an aversion to, to these kinds of animals or anything like that. But it's what God had described back under the law of Moses as a means by which he was separating his people, Israel, from the rest of the world. Listen to how it is worded by the Lord there in Leviticus 20, verse 25. God said, therefore, you are to distinguish the clean animal from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean one. And do not be contaminated by any land animal, bird or whatever crawls on the ground. I have set these apart as unclean for you. You are to be to you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. It's important to note that the dietary restrictions were nothing about what is a better meal or not a better meal or great selling books today about we need to go back and eat like they did in the Old Testament. There's nothing to do with it. The whole point of the separation of clean and unclean animals was only so that Israel would look different from everybody else. It was the only reason. They would be awed that they didn't eat everything that was out there. They were set apart in that way so that it would be observed about them that they belonged to the Lord. And so in this vision, when God says, arise and kill and eat, Peter says, well, no way. He's observing that text right there that says, I would never do such a thing. I am supposed to remain separate and not eat those things as I would never touch anything that is unclean or impure. But what is interesting in that vision that keeps happening is that God keeps answering as recorded in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call impure. Now, I think it's important to notice that verse 17 shows that this wasn't just simply a message from God to Peter that you can eat animals now. Because verse 17 
It says, Peter was deeply perplexed by what the meaning of the vision was. Well, it seems pretty straightforward. If the old intention was rise, kill, and eat. Okay, rise, kill, and eat. Simple, right? Obviously, Peter understands that that's not the point. That's not the message. That's not what's going on. That's not the intent. And that's what he's trying to figure out is, why did I have a vision about these animals and God saying, rise, kill, and eat, and no longer call unclean what God has now cleansed. He's trying to work that out. And no sooner does that happen that these messengers that have been sent by Cornelius come in verse 18 and 19, and, and they are now looking for Peter, and God now has to tell Peter one more time, to go with these men without hesitation, to follow them and go where they are going because I have sent them. And so Peter goes down and he questions these men. Verse 21, what, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you are here? And they give this answer that I think is important to listen to. They say in verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. We're here because Cornelius saw an angel that said to come get you. So would you come with us? And that's basically how that worked. Verse 23, Peter says, let's go. The next day, they now head their way to Caesarea. And then, what we notice is the rest of this chapter is now Peter working through the understanding of what this vision was all about. So as Peter comes into the house in verse 25, we're told that Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I myself am also a man. I just have to stop there. Not the point of the sermon at all. But you have to stop there and see that. Is that here Peter comes in and Cornelius reveres him. You were a great apostle. Falls down at, at his feet. And I love it. says Peter picks him up. He doesn't imagine. Get up. Uh, I, I'm a man just like you. I'm not to be treated differently than anybody else. And I want to underscore that. That if the apostle Peter says... That if he wasn't supposed to be revered or treated differently than anybody else, then nobody is. And you can put away your hats and your robes and your titles and whatever. Nobody is. Nobody bows down before another human. Peter, this is the apostle Peter. And he says, no, not even I. No, get up. Only God is to be honored. Only God is to be revered. And he tells him to stand up. And then he tell, goes on and he sees this large gathering in verse 27. All these people are here. Verse 24 tells us Cornelius has not only his household, his relatives, his close friends are all with him there. And notice Peter's first understanding. Verse 28. Peter said to them, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. And that's why I came without objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? I want you to see Peter working through this. Remember, he sees the vision deeply perplexed. 
What does this vision mean? And his first understanding is, I'm not to call any person impure or unclean. He, he, first first walk through, first, first grasping of what this is all about is that would not be how he would look at people. It's not his perspective anymore. And that's why he says there in verse, verse 28, I came without any objection. And so then he asked there in verse 29, so why have you sent for me? Now, I love this answer. Cornelius says, well, here's what happened. I was praying and an angel came and said to get you. And so he says there in verse 33, so now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have command, been commanded by the Lord. God told us to get you and we're all here for you. So fire away. What do you got? <laughs> you know, it's great that they keep going back and forth. Peter goes, why'd you call for me? We want to hear a message from you. That's why we're here. That, that's it. Let's go. <laughs> so Peter goes, all right. Verse 34, second understanding. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Second step he understands. First step is don't call somebody unclean or impure. No distinction between people. His second understanding is God is not partial. God's not playing favorites. God is not doing that. Anyone, underscore there, anyone who fears the Lord and does what is right is acceptable to God. That's his second understanding. So then he goes about preaching the message of Jesus from, from verse 36 all the way to verse 42, telling them about how you know about the events of Jesus, which is really interesting that that tells you what an impact the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus had made that here Peter is able to say, you Roman commander of an army in Caesarea, you know, verse 37, the events that took place throughout all Judea. You, you, you've heard. You know what's happened. It may explain why he's devout to God and praying every day and doing his charitable works. You know what happened. And so he proclaims the resurrection of Jesus to this centurion. And he says in verse 43, and all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Notice stepping into that spot again. This is now open for everybody. Anyone can receive the salvation. Anyone can now enter into this relationship with God. Confirmation of that is in verses 44 through 48 is that while Peter is saying these words, the spirit falls upon these Gentiles. The circumcised believers who are with them are amazed, verse 45, and seeing that this has also happened on the Gentiles. And that is why Peter in verse 47 says, who can withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commands them to be baptized and then ask them to stay a few days. Now, chapter 11 is just as important, even though we've got this big chapter break right here. But chapter 11, these first 18 verses, Peter has to explain all this now. 
First is the visions, then his own understanding about what God meant by the visions. And now he's going to have to teach ultimately what this is about. Explain this to everybody, because in the first three verses of, of, of Acts 11, you have Jewish Christians who are coming to Peter and they are ultimately challenging him. And they are questioning him and trying to understand you went with circumcised men and ate with them and you went in their house. You participated in their unclean ways and were, were joined in that. What were you doing, Peter? How could you possibly go into their house and eat with them and proclaim the gospel to them and do all that that you did? And so what you'll see Peter doing from verse four is recounting everything we just saw in chapter 10. Well, here's what happened. I was up on the rooftop and I had a vision about animals coming down. He starts going through the whole explanation of what he saw and how he was told to go without hesitation with Cornelius and, and accompany them and proclaim the message to them and to all the household. Verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as it came upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. He recounts the whole thing to observe the point that God has given them the same gift. They have the same access. They can enjoy this salvation. And to their credit, they respond by glorifying God, that God has granted repentance to even these Gentiles that they can enjoy life in Christ. Now, I want to applications from this text because I think they are the two primary applications from this text one is directly stated repeatedly and the other is strongly implied in the way that the account is told to us the first thing that you see that is underscored again and again and again is this picture of how we look at other people that here you have God laying out a very important thing here regarding this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles and declaring that God is not partial. He doesn't play favorites and that repentance is granted to everyone. And the reason why this is important is that if God does not look at people differently, and is not partial, nor plays favorites, then do we. This is a monumental shift that is happening here at this moment. That you have this distinction that God had created between Israel and the rest of the world. But his point that he wants to observe is that wasn't about treating people differently, but was bringing about this holy nation so that the Messiah could come. But that it has always been declared. Remember what Peter said, the prophet said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord could be said that it was always the mind of God that salvation would be to everyone. 
And I think it is important that we consider, especially in a day and time where there is such an evaluation of people based upon where they came from, what they look like, how much money they make, what their career is. We evaluate people by all of these superficial things in our society and in a particular our American culture today that we need to be careful that that is not what we are doing. That we do not look at people with a preconceived idea based upon some kind of external thing like that because God doesn't. God doesn't do that. And that's what he is drilling into Peter at this moment so that every time he opens his mouth, he is saying, I perceive no one's unclean in that regard that we should stay away from them. Don't talk to those Gentiles. Don't go into their house. He goes, no, that's not right. And he even understands the need to give salvation messages to the Gentiles, that God is not partial, that God doesn't show favorites. And I think it is so important that we consider for ourselves how we think about other people and how do we look at them. And if we have preconceived notions about them based upon some kind of cultural, ethnic, racial, economic, social, whatever construct that we may have. And I think it is interesting to think about, sometimes they'll hear this saying, well, that's hard for me to do because that was how I was raised. So was Peter. (laughs) Peter was raised with this barrier between Jew and Gentile. And rightly, that was intended by God to make a teaching point. And yet even still, Peter is walking through this and tearing these barriers down and understanding, no, God is not partial, that those distinctions are not supposed to be made. And I think it is important as we think about this, how God is always labeling that And declaring that and blasting this idea all throughout the scriptures. One of them that we probably know pretty well. James 2 verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show prejudice you are committing sin. And are convicted by the law as violators. You had this constant issue that was being dealt with through the scriptures about a warning about being partial. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves here in James 2, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is the way that we think about other people and is the way that we talk about other people. And the way we talk to other people and the way that we act, loving them as we would want them to love us. That needs to be the grid that we work through. Is is the way that I'm thinking about somebody, is that how I would want to be thought about? And is the way that I'm talking about somebody, the way I would want to be talked about? And the way that I'm acting towards somebody. The way that I want to be acted toward. 
I have to ask ourselves if we see other people with particular negative evaluations and do we want to be evaluated ourselves by such preconceived notions or stereotypes? I have low-level ones. I'll use them as examples, not because they are of any significance, but just because they are. <laughs> you know, I came from California. That already throws all kinds of preconceived ideas right there, right? Oh, he's from California. <laughs> and I've had those. I'm from the land of fruits and nuts. He can't be conservative or traditional. He must be a liberal. He must be a nutcase. Do you want to be evaluated by things like that? Do you want to be evaluated by where you were born and where your hometown is? Because that must mean something about you? No. But we do that. We do those kinds of things. We layer upon people thing, or things that we shouldn't. The other one was interesting. Being from Palm Beach County has also had that. I was in a, in a gospel meeting and ultimately was told, well, since I'm from Palm Beach, we don't really need to, to pay you anything for your gospel meeting because you're so rich. West Palm Beach. <laughs> big difference. <laughs> big, big difference. <laughs> Same valuation, though. We do those kinds of things. And we have to be careful that so often we can start with a preconceived notion, a stereotype, an idea or whatever, and instantly apply it to somebody else. And I just ask you, do you want somebody else's experience about somebody else to be applied to you? We shouldn't. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. And what we are being told by the scriptures is that we are committing sin and violating God's law when we try to make those kinds of distinctions. When we don't evaluate people for who they are, but rather start with our construct of what I think about you based upon whatever we want to use as the background. I think it is so powerful that what we see Peter doing and really the apostle Paul doing, especially in every single letter of his is breaking down those kinds of barriers. That's what the Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatians. Friends, there's not Jew or Greek. There's not slave or free. There's not any of these things anymore. And the whole idea is supposed to be if there is any place where we would ever be evaluated simply by who we are, it ought to be in the body of Christ. And but nothing else. And it devastates me to think historically that hasn't been true. That hasn't been true. When that should be the very place where not only that was observed, but would have been as a force of God's light to the world and showing that. That's what should be happening. Is that this is the place where we show that God loves everybody and we reflect that. And it doesn't matter where you were born. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. And it doesn't matter if you have a funny accent. Or if you look different, talk different, think different. That in the body of Christ, we're all pulled together as one. It's a beautiful thing that you see God working with Cornelius and with Peter, 
Talk about the unlikely of people. But you find that even in, in the calling of the disciples. I've wanted to always know what did those discussions look like when you had Matthew, a tax collector for the Roman Empire, and Simon the Zealot, whose intent is to overthrow the Roman Empire. You guys be apostles, go. <laughs> what did that look like? <laughs> they have two completely different worldviews that they're coming into Christ with. And they're the apostles. And that's what's supposed to happen in the body of Christ. And so, friends, we have to overcome our culture. We have to overcome our upbringing. We have to overcome our peers so that we're always loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's what you see Peter proclaiming and exemplifying and wonderfully in Acts 11, the people of God accepting and rejoicing that all are able to enjoy repentance. That's the first big thing that you see is Peter's proclamation of that message. Number two, the other thing that jumps off the page is Cornelius' situation. How God moves with Cornelius should be fascinating to us because the descriptions given to us about Cornelius should be somewhat jarring as I tried to highlight as we read through it. Cornelius is a devout man who fears God, according to verse 2. You see also in verse 2, he's doing charitable acts. He's praying to God always, according to the text. We're even told that God is hearing his prayers, specifically said in verse 31, clearly implied in verse 4 when an angel comes and responds to Cornelius as he's praying at that very time. We're told by the messengers of Cornelius that he's an upright, God-fearing man who has a good reputation. But here's what should be surprising to us in a way. That Peter still commands them to be baptized. I mean, look at his credentials. Devout, fears God, does good, charitable deeds, praying to God always. God's even hearing his prayers. He's upright, good reputation. He's got everything going for him. And yet you see that Peter still commands his need to be Baptized. In particular, I'd like for you to look at chapter 11 and verse 15. <clears throat> in verse 15, he remembers, he says, as I speak, he's recounting what happened in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, verse 15, the Holy Spirit came down on them, the Gentiles, Cornelius, the household, his relatives. And just us, as it was in the beginning, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. Here's the phrase I want you to think about. Peter says, how could I possibly hinder God or stand in God's way? And I want you to think about something for a minute. He wasn't going to stand in God's way of doing what? So here's Cornelius, God-fearing man, praying to God, charitable deeds, all those kinds of great things. 
And Peter then says, but I saw this happen and I was not going to be standing in God's way. Standing in God's way of doing what? Look at verse 18. Granting repentance that results in life. That's what he goes on to say. That's what they're all exclaiming. God has granted them repentance that leads to life. That's why he commands them to be baptized. Is because he wasn't going to stand in God's way of that repentance and that giving of life being able to be offered. So two things I want us to see within that second point. Number one, Cornelius is a good person. He's not saved. The reason why that's important is because we live in a culture and a worldview right now that as long as you're not a really terribly bad person, we're all going to heaven. <laughs> just, just don't be really, 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 really bad. Just, just don't be somebody like that. But on the general whole, as long as you're just not this really wretched person, we're all going to be fine. And I want you to see Cornelius is a good guy. And he's doing good deeds. So much so that he has a good reputation among the Jewish community. Can you imagine a Roman commander having a good reputation among the Jews? He must have been a pretty good guy. He must have been doing a lot of good deeds for that to happen. The Jews hated the Romans and their occupation within their land. And yet he has a good reputation. But he's not saved. And I want us to see that this text clearly shows us you're not saved. By being a good person. And you're not even saved by doing religious activity. He's praying and praying and praying. And he's doing good deeds for God. But that's still not enough. I also want us to see number two with that. He wasn't granted repentance that leads to life until he was baptized. That's what Peter is saying. Who was I to stand in God's way? Well, what do you mean, Peter? Well, when he's we go back to chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit falls, what does Peter say? Be baptized. That's all that's left is he tells them you need to be baptized. And the point that you're seeing is so important is that you need to finish where God has brought you in your spiritual journey. And I think it's important to underscore this. Cornelius is clearly on a spiritual journey. I think that'd be a very fair statement. He's seeking God. He's praying to God. He's doing good deeds for God. He's trying to help out the people of God, Israel. He clearly then is even doing what God says. When God says, go send for Peter, he doesn't go, eh, whatever. Okay, whatever. And here we are. We're waiting for you, Peter. You tell us what you're here for. Tell us the message. We want to hear it. He's clearly on a spiritual journey. There's nothing to be negated about his journey that he's been praying to God. He's been seeking God. He's doing good for God, but he needed to finish that journey of faith. And that's what Peter was saying. There's nothing wrong with what Cornelius was doing, but he needed to finish the journey. He needed to go all the way. In his spiritual walk of understanding who God is. He's praying to God. He's doing good for God. And Peter says, you need to be baptized for God. You need to be baptized so that we are not hindering God granting repentance that leads to life. There's a reason why 
the Gospel of Matthew ultimately ends with the words of Jesus saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now we know there's so many more things about what it looks like in this journey of faith to come to God. Why say baptism? Why not say, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, praying for them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or having them repent in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or confessing Jesus as the Father, as the Son of God, and understanding who the Father is and the Holy Spirit is. Because baptism's that final step. That's the movement of the journey. That's where Cornelius is going. In fact, as we've gone through our series in the book of Acts, we've observed that with everybody. Everybody's moving on that journey. What about the eunuch who's doing the exact same thing, who's coming to completion at baptism? What about the Samaritans who are coming to that completion at baptism? Now it's Cornelius who's doing the same thing as he's moving in this spiritual journey. And we need to encourage people to that spiritual journey to move in that walk of faith, but to understand there's still more that needs to be done to grant that life that God is wanting to give. And so don't come up short in your journey of faith. It's a necessary step to be granted repentance that leads to life. And that is the beauty of what the Apostle Peter says. Every person who fears the Lord and does what is acceptable to him is able to be saved. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, how can we not love you more because you don't care about where we're from you don't care about our backgrounds you don't care about how much money we make you don't care about what kind of job we do you don't care about any of those kinds of things Lord we live in a world right now that is just stuck on those things And Lord, I pray that as your people, that we would never look at others or evaluate others as anything else but a soul that you have created and that you love. God, forgive us for the times where we have passed judgments upon people that should not have been passed. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have looked at others with skepticism without reason, looked at others with preconceived notions based upon where they're from or how much money they make or what they do or how they talk or how they look. And God, we pray that there would be a healing in our country as people would look to you and realize you are the answer to the conflicts that we so often see. And Lord, so often we just miss that. We make so much of ourselves and so little of you. Lord, help us to show how much you love every single soul. Help us to share the good news about how much you love every single person. 
forgive us for the times when we have allowed ourselves to filter who we will share the gospel with. We'll choose who we think is worthy of your son and who is not. Lord, forgive us for how easy it is to fall into the traps of the thinking of our culture, to think ways that are not loving. Lord, I pray that we would be all the more strengthened and encouraged to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, help us to think about how we would want to be treated and thought about use that as the way that we talk and think about other people forgive us lord for when we haven't done it and help us to be far more faithful and far more steadfast and loving others just like you love us thank you for salvation and thank you for granting us repentance that leads to life thank you for sending your son to make that possible Thank you for sending your son that breaks down all the barriers, all the things that we allow to get in the way of relationships. Thank you for your son that tore it all down. So no matter who we are, we could all be fellow heirs and enjoy eternity together. God, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. We will sing an invitation song. We invite you to think about your situation. If you've been on that spiritual journey, I hope for you will take the next step of wherever you're at. Think about where you're at and with God. Needing to come to understand him more? We'd love to help you in that. You're ready to turn away from sins and confess that to God? We want to help you in that. If you need uh, prayers and that effort of turning away from sin, we'd love to help you in that. And if you're ready to complete your journey, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and be granted life, we want to help you with that. Can we help you in any way? You can let us know afterward or you can come now while we stand and while we sing.